Does anybody want to win the Pac-12 besides Oregon and Utah? It doesn't seem like it. Everybody seems to be messing it up for themselves. We're going to recap and we're going to grade all the teams in the conference. And also, we have a new champion in the conference. We have a new worst team in the conference. It is no longer the team that has been for the last seemingly decade. We have a new cellar-dweller team. And one defensive coordinator resides, and maybe there should be two. And of course, the Pac-12 Power Rankings. I'm George Reister with Ralph Amston, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. Ralph, after week six in the Pac-12, there were some interesting games, but it seems like nobody wants to win the conference right now besides Oregon and Utah. Everybody else is screwing it up for them themselves, but there is a side note. Arizona, who we thought Kevin Sumlin was going to be on the hot seat, they are playing extremely well as well. Yeah, it's like ever since people were like, let's fire Marcel Yates, and I think we even brought it up on the podcast that that his time could be short in Arizona. They've all sort of rallied around him and played some better defense. Not great defense. They still had a pretty rough go against Colorado, but they did enough. Um, And so the defense is is not super talented, not super deep, but they're playing inspired right now. And um, offensively, they've got some good things going for them, even though they've got an unhealthy quarterback. And it's, it's sort of helped that they've got you know, UCLA and Colorado in back-to-back weeks who haven't really been able to stop anyone either. And so, yeah, a part of it's just they're, they're in a really, really uh, advantageous part of their schedule. It's going to get tougher from here. I look at this and I'm saying, when I watch Saturdays, it seems like there's so much consistency in other conferences that you know who's going to win. If you have a ranked team playing a non-ranked team, the ranked team just consistently wins. And the only thing more chaotic than the Pac-12 schedule every week and who's going to win is Pac-12 after dark because you know weirdo stuff is going to happen. And you said and, it. I mean, you said that that was going to go down, and I didn't believe it. And and Stanford went out and put Washington to sleep. They almost put me to sleep. Three different times I had to pinch myself to stay awake for that entire fourth quarter. Uh, and I'm somebody who goes to bed at like 1, 2 in the morning and so this was, I mean, they, they were like out there snake charming. Just, I mean, I, I could not believe how Washington just fell right into Stanford's trap the way they did. How much do you think of this is, of this, do you think is, you know, related to the Pac-12 schedule? You know, playing on Thursdays, playing at 9 a.m., playing at 1230. I mean, there's so much variance and start times and days of the week. Do you think that that creates some of the chaos? Consistency breeds consistency. I believe that wholeheartedly. I think you've seen the NFL move to a schedule where they're moving people around even more. Um, and uh, and I think that you've started to see the product reflect what the NFL is doing. Everybody knows that four out of every five Thursday night games is going to be a giant mess. Um, the NFL has always had parity, uh, but you know, the the play on the field usually hasn't been as crazy from week to week. And now that that's happening, it just kind of reminds me of what goes on in the Pac-12 because you never really know what somebody's going to be able to do from week to week because stylistically things are so strange. Uh, the travel is pretty wild. You know, people talk about how difficult it is for a West Coast team to go East. 
But that's the same amount of distance that Arizona State travels when if they're going to go to Seattle or the same amount of distance that USC travels if they're going to go to Pullman. So, I mean, Colorado, Colorado and Utah, everybody thinks that they're right next to each other, but those two schools are over 1,000 miles from each other. The travel's hard. The scheduling's hard. The different styles are hard. Everything about stuff in the Pac-12 sort of feeds into, you know, you never really know what's going to happen from week to week. It's part of the appeal of the conference, and it's ultimately the most frustrating thing about it as well. You literally cannot count on anybody for anything. No. Because everybody knows that, like, so originally you had Oregon and Washington kind of being picked around, Oregon, Washington, and Utah really being picked a lot around the conference, potential playoff, and all of that. And then Cal sneaks up, which which I thought they could, and they play well. And then Cal gets all the way, I think they were ranked 15th, before they went and lost to Arizona State. And and you're just sitting there. And and Chase Garbers gets hurt. So you're sitting there like, come on, man. Like, we can't count on you for anything because Cal is nothing offensively without Chase Garbers. It, it completely changes who they are. They are a team that went from potentially contending for the Pac-12 North Championship, being a legit contender, and we've seen that with how they've been able to strangle people defensively. They put Oregon in a in a headlock for three quarters, basically. They obviously beat Washington back-to-back years. This is a time where I'm sitting there like, this ain't good, brother. Like the and then you got Washington turn around and loses to Stanford. And now that so the Cal Oregon game lost so much of its luster. Because if Cal were undefeated, it could have been a game day game. And then the Oregon-Washington game could have been another game day event. But now neither one of those teams is ranked. And it's so frustrating. Like you should be able to count on your best teams to win games. That way you have big games in the conference. Yeah. I mean, look, when you see Cal on the schedule, it's still going to be like walking over hot coals. Right, like there's nothing, there's nothing fun about having to play against this defense. Oregon learned that. Everyone's going to have to learn that. But um, you know, you said that they're they're not able to do much without Chase Garbers. They weren't doing much with him. Uh, it, it was always going to be an uphill battle for Cal. Everything was going to have to go right. And the only thing that you can really expect in the Pac-12 is that you're going to have some injuries. We know that now because almost everybody's on their backup quarterback. At this point, if not third string, I mean, we got to see Stanford play a third string quarterback. We had to see a third string quarterback start at USC. Uh, we had to see a freshman start for U of A. It's been an absolute mess all over the place. Um, and so, I mean, you know, uh, this conference is not, I don't know what else to say. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I look at Cal right now and I know that they're probably going to get a couple of wins down the stretch just by playing the way that they play. The defense is going to go out and do the job. They're that good. Yeah, but the problem with it is, is that teams, is that Cal, when they're not ranked, they don't get that respect nationally for a win against them. So it so it looks like they are uh, just another team. When their defense, I mean, I'm not going to, so I heard from two coaches that for in the Pac-12, they said Cal has a national championship caliber defense. They just do not have an offense to match. And that that happens, right? That happens. And then sometimes that can still, 
you know, that can still put you over the top. I mean, Arizona State had that back in 2009. If you go and look at what they were putting on the field and offensively, they did absolutely nothing. The offensive line was too young. Um, they just, they, they couldn't run the ball. And it reminds me of this year's Cal team. Like it was, playing Arizona State back in 2009 was a pain, pain in the ass, but it was a win. So, I mean, uh, it, sometimes it just works out like that now. If they can capitalize on it, they'll be in a really good place because they've been recruiting really well. They've got some offensive help that is on the way. Uh, I I think that as long as the coaches don't get a little bit antsy and start jumping ship and capitalizing on all of the um, goodwill that they've built up so far um, and have a little bit of patience, they could still, you know, this, they could still be on an upward trajectory. I believe that. So, so the question is this, Ralph, is who at this point in time, because you have, I'm going to lean, I'm going to let you go first because I, because I have been way wrong on the picks as of, as of the last couple of weeks, I have been struggling. So I picked Colorado, they lost, picked Oregon, they won, picked UCLA, they lost. Uh, Did I pick Stanford? Okay, so I got to go back and listen because you kept saying over and over and over again that like something crazy is going to happen and you were leaning Stanford, but I don't remember if you locked that in or not. <sighs> I, because I, I was thinking about that leading into the leading into the show is I was like he he didn't go through with it, did he? I felt like you did, maybe. No, no, I, I even tweeted it out. Now that I think about it, I, oh, I okay, tweeted out, okay, I said, you were. I said I said that Stanford that Stanford is going to bounce back, that they're going to make this extremely difficult for Washington. And, but Washington will eventually pull it out barely on like a field goal or something. Uh, And yeah, no, you were, you were leaning Stanford pretty hard on the podcast. uh, It was so, I mean, it, it felt so obvious to me, but Stanford was playing so poorly. So who do you think at this, at this point in time, looking at the PAC 12 standings, who do you believe will ultimately end up winning the South? I don't know, BYU or somebody. <laughs> Nobody in the South. <laughs> like, I, I think Utah's got a path to it, but they can't lose. Like, they already lost to USC. Arizona State is an absolute thorn in their side, almost always. Um the more and more I watch Steven Montez go to work, the more and more dangerous they look. They just um, don't play any defense. No, they do not. They do not. Uh, gosh, I, I think that Utah's probably in prime position unless as Slovis you know, gets this week off and he's healthy and he looks more like he did um, in his first appearance, then I might give the edge to USC. USC was my pick at eight and four to win the South heading in. Um, and they've got that tiebreaker over Utah at this point. So um, I, I, I think that Utah is probably the better team at this point in time, but USC's got that advantage. And if they can, if USC can win the games that it's pretty obvious that they are far more talented than their opposition, especially with, uh, you know, with UCLA and, and Colorado, um, then and and win a couple that maybe people don't think that they have the ability to, then maybe they'll do it. But for me right now, it's a toss up between you. Yeah, and I, USC. I think that whoever wins the uh, South could have three conference losses. 
which is crazy. But now uh, we can finish up with our Pac-12 power rankings, Ralph. Pac-12 power rankings, which obviously have gotten, well, I would say the Pac-12 power rankings have gotten crazy this this week. Only because it, as the season moves on, it's so much more difficult to to assess who is the best team in the conference. Because well, well, not the, not not the best. I would say th- four through twelve, four through eleven are difficult picks at this point in time because so many of those teams have beat each other. So, what are your teams right now, Ralph? Cool. So I'm I moved past the point of feeling bad about my picks, and it's just if somebody wants to argue with me, I'll just say you know what, okay, <laughs> like maybe you're right. Um, but this week broke me for sure. Uh, UCLA at number 12. I feel good-ish about that. Uh, Oregon State at number 11. They literally lost to the team. They have one win, and they lost to the team that was in 12. So, yes, that's an easy one. And a big congratulations to Oregon State at number 11. This is an accomplishment. You should celebrate. Uh, Shout-out to my guy, Colby Taylor, out there. I know you're not listening to this, but um, I'm glad to see Oregon State out of the cellar. Uh, Washington State at number 10. Cal coming in at number nine, and I do not feel good about that, but I'm just sort of projecting into the future. Uh, Colorado at eight, and uh, we got University of Arizona at four and one at number seven. Wow. Wow. How did you put them at number seven? Well, you've seen the schedule that they have coming up. I'm just... I'm just letting them know where they're going to end up. See, <laughs> see, you put people where they're going to end up. I put people where they are and where they deserve to be, where I feel like they deserve to be at this point in time. I think that that there are so many times that teams, you know, that they are, that, that people try to project out, and I just base it on three criteria. Schedule play, dominance, and quality wins. And this was a tough one for, for me. I got UCLA at number 12, which was an obvious, easy choice. Worst defense in America, probably. And definitely the worst defense in the Pac-12. Pac I like Chip Kelly. Don't love how this team's playing, especially without Dorian Thompson-Robinson. Number 11, the Oregon State Beavers. They are out of the cellar. It is to be appreciated and congratulated. <laughs> High five, Beavers. Um, number 10, I have the boys from the Palouse, the Washington State Cougars. At number nine, I have the Colorado Buffaloes, who fell from number four to number five. I'm sorry, from number four to number nine. Um, at number eight, I have the Stanford Cardinal because they got a big win. And when you get big wins, you get big moves. They beat Washington, which everybody respects in the conference, even though they might not respect them quite as much this week. And then at number seven, I got Cal. Cal is just not the same team without Garbers. They are tremendous on defense. They will give you a headache. But the problem is if you score 20 20 points, you're probably going to win. If you can find a way to get 20 points, you're probably going to win. And they have held, I think, their last uh, tw- 
13 or something opponents to under 25 points, which is pretty doggone incredible. Try that, UCLA. Um, so who are your top six, Ralph? Uh, my top six, I'm going with, and this I'm, we'll call this a warning shot, but I got Washington at number six. Uh, and above them for what happened at number five, I have Stanford. That just makes sense to me at this point for some reason. Um, USC at number four. You, uh, you know Stanford lost badly, right? Yeah. You know they lost badly to uh, UCF. They lost badly to uh, – well, they lost pretty badly to Oregon. And then they got crushed by USC. You do know that, right? I do know that. I'm looking at some of the teams that are coming up on their schedule, and I'm not sure that those teams know how to get out of quicksand either. So <laughs> so they're currently my number five. Number four, I've got USC. They get that 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 off-week boost <laughs> just from other people looking bad. It's, it's always nice for USC to have that week off where they're not really making any mistakes. For some reason, every bye week for USC always feels like a win. Uh, number three, uh, I've got Arizona State. And it feels like they're over overrated by me in this case. But I've, I've been thinking about this, and I have them at number three because they remind me of uh, – there was a guy who fought in the UFC for a few years, and his name was Matt Brown. And I think he got into the UFC through their reality show. And, and at the time, he was like eight and six in his career. And usually in the UFC, if you lose a couple of fights in a row, you get cut from the production, right? Because they just want the best of the best. This dude fought in the UFC for several years, for like eight, nine years, and he went 13 and 10. And he lost a whole bunch, but every single time he fought, it was like bloody, right? And that's what people liked is that it was just, it, that it was, even if he got beat, it was a problem for the other team. And I, Arizona State to me, more and more, they are the Matt Brown of this conference. It does not matter that they are worse than another team. It does not matter if they're better than, <laughs> than another team. They're going to go in and they're going to find a way to make it an absolute slugfest. And both teams at the end of the game are going to be covered in blood and you say good fight and you move on. And so that's kind of the exciting thing about Arizona State football right now. Um, but uh, talent-wise, I still don't think they're very good. And so it's crazy to me to have them as high as number three because there exists a universe in which somehow Arizona State ends up 11-1. and one. It could happen and, and at the same time. Yeah, they could, they could lose a bunch too, and you never really know what you're going to get with them. You just know it's going to be fun to watch. I got Utah at number two. They get that bye week boost as well, but they are very, very strong in some areas where you need to be strong to be competitive. Uh, and then number one at this point is Oregon, just sort of by default. They're the most talented team, and they're winning the games that they should be winning. So far, everyone else in the Pac-12 has managed to, I think, lose a game as a favorite. And Oregon has not pulled that off yet. <laughs> and for that reason, they come in at number one. Uh, for me, at number six, I got the USC Trojans. I'm still unsure about this team at quarterback. They have been up and down. They lost to BYU. They lost to uh, – who, who did they just lose to? They lost to BYU and they lost to yeah, – You're talking about USC? To, wait, yeah. Oh, my God, I'm so confused. They <laughs> UCLA lost to BYU <laughs> and – oh, oh, and they, and they lost to Washington. Jeez Louise. 
They lost to Washington. Oh, I was getting I was getting confused because I thought you were you kept you kept mixing up UCLA yeah. and USC, and so I was I couldn't follow. I was like. Wait, is he talking – UCLA didn't lose to BYU. I mean, they will <laughs> if they're on the schedule. So – But they yeah, haven't so yet. I got USC at six. I got Washington at five. I had to put them in front of UCLA because they just beat USC a couple weeks ago. Wait, did, did I say UCLA again? Oh, You man. did it again? I'm so confused right now. So, okay, six USC, five the Washington Huskies. Four, the Arizona Wildcats. This doesn't feel good at all. I'm going to tell you, four doesn't feel good. Arizona State at three. I agree with everything you said about them. It doesn't feel good, just like Colorado didn't feel good at number four last week. It didn't feel good. And so if it doesn't feel good, you know what's coming next. Number two, I got, I mean, it's obvious. You got Utah, who's playing well, and Tyler Hundley is trying to shut me up. I get it. I understand. I, I will not doubt you again until it's time to doubt you again. Um, and then you got Oregon at number one. This is clear. They're the best team in the conference. And hopefully they can finish the season 11 and one and play against an 11 and one Utah in the Pac-12 in the Pac-12 championship. And you can have a top 10 showdown in the Pac-12 championship. And maybe the winner sneaks into the Pac-12 playoff. I'm the college football playoff. That is my hope, Ralph. The conference is just set up for absolute madness. But I think in the South, I think USC, I, I'm, I would go with either USC, Arizona, or Arizona State. But but I'm going to go with U, USC with a second, with like a side. I think that USC, I'll give them a 75% chance to win the South. I'll give Arizona State a... 12 and a half. Oh, no, no, no. I said 70, 75. I'll give Arizona State a 20% chance to win the South, and I'll give everybody else except for UCLA a 5% chance. Did you see the uh, Kyle Bonagura, the ESPN.com reporter? Did you see his tweet about the uh, the algorithm he used to determine the most likely final Pac 12 standings? Oh, yeah. I've been laughing he had about everybody that. Everybody at either five and four or four and yeah. five. Every single theme was. And it's mathematically possible, and it is. It's it's not likely. Only only because I I, I would find it very hard pressed to see Utah or Oregon losing four conference games. Yes, I think that that's a bit far far fetched. But he's not that far off. It made me laugh when you were talking just now. I was just thinking about that that, that tweet. I just so and when and the fact that a couple of the people in, and it always works out this way, but a couple of people in his replies were like, "You're dumb," like, and I think they thought that he was serious. But oh man, I I just I looked at that and I was like, "Yeah, why not? Why why would this not be a feasible thing this year?" Ralph and I I, I want to let everybody know. You guys, this is the Pac-12 Apostles, a podcast for the Pac-12. This is about us, the conference that we care about. So you guys make sure that you guys share the feed. Tell a friend about Pac-12 Apostles because this is for for us. We are underrepresented and people always want to hate on the Pac-12. Say we're, you know, and we are going to have a voice. We are going to be present all the time. But I say that to say this. We are about accountability on the Pac-12 Apostles. We we hold Larry Scott accountable. We hold the teams accountable, coaches, all of that. And I have to be held accountable at this point in time, Ralph. Okay. I mocked you. 
I laughed at you. I called you a fool. I called you crazy for saying that UCLA was going to be so bad, saying that they were going to go 1-11. And now I must apologize because even if they do win two games, your pick, your prediction was not that outrageous. And you were clearly spot on, even, even if they win a second game. This team is putrid. It is tough to watch. I was in the stands yesterday. It, it, <laughs> like, I was like, why? Did I, I tell you what, um, it's never fun to be right about someone else's struggle unless you're getting paid. And I'm not getting paid to be right about, you know, this isn't, this isn't like the guys from uh, uh, the big short <laughs> who made a bunch of money realizing that the collapse of the economy was coming. Um, I didn't feel like it was outrageous. I looked at this team, and now there's a caveat here, right? I said that if they stick with Chip Kelly, this is breaking a bone and resetting that bone. They are going to start to look more like a Chip Kelly team as long as you have the patience to get through what is going to be some very, very ugly football. And they're in the ugly part of it, and and a lot of people don't have the stomach for that, especially in in today's day and age, um, because if something looks really really bad, you start to panic and think you know it's it's unsalvageable. It's that moment when you're underwater and you're holding your breath and it hits you, and then it's all instinct like get to the surface, get to the surface, and, and that might ultimately be where you know UCLA boosters and UCLA fans end up as this season progresses. But I don't think that they should because I I don't unless they're going to go young and we'll talk about that I don't think that there's a better option for them out there right now and if you're gonna hire Chip Kelly you have to commit to his process otherwise it's not Chip Kelly that looks bad he has like two buyouts uh that he could just fall back on and if they want to give him a third one then you know he can you, you Chip Kelly can do that Breaking Bad thing where where the the dude just goes backwards onto the big pile of cash, like Chip. Except Chip Kelly can have like twin mattresses, like oh, yeah. he, he can have multiple beds around the room. He he has so much money. It's not he's not <laughs> going to lose. That team might be losing on the field, but Chip Kelly's in a position in his life right now where there is no losing. So if you're going to hire him you got to stick this process out or you're the one that's going to suffer. You're the one that's going to end up looking bad. And so I would just have, say, exercise patience. If you were going to bring him in and the way that he recruits and the way that he does things, you have to have a three- or four-year commitment to, before you even open up the idea of, you know, are we going to make a change? And I, I always felt like going into year two is when it was going to look the absolute worst. And it looks really bad. Oh, well, well, see, it's weird because they look atrocious on defense. I have not seen a less physical, a more undisciplined, bad scheme having team in a long time. They but offensively, they look better. I mean, even with the backup quarterback, Burton, he was pretty good. Put up 31 points. Problem is you gave up 48. I mean, it, it is just like you can't win with this type of defense. You just can't. And that brings us to UCLA's defensive coordinator. 
Jerry Azanaro. And the reason why he's brought up, why, why we bring up coaches, is because he is the leader of it. And you had this same week, Tracy Clays, the defensive coordinator at Washington State, resigned. He resigned. Some people speculated that it was for health reasons, but it wasn't. He put out a tweet, said, thank you, Coach Leach, for the opportunity. I didn't resign for health or personal reasons. The defense has struggled, and I am responsible. We couldn't agree on solutions, so the speed D is better with new leadership. I love the players and staff. Can I they jump in and talk about this tweet real Go quick? Cougs. This is my favorite coaching of thing course. I've ever seen. This is this is the best. Uh, and let me tell you why. Number one, gratitude. Gratitude is the most important thing in life, hands down. And you, you can you weigh in on whether or not you believe there's sincerity in this. But I think that you should always lead with gratitude. He thanks Coach Leach. Love that. It was an opportunity that was given to him by Coach Leach. He did what he he, he could with it. Um, be grateful. He says, I didn't resign for health or personal reasons. So he's honest. I love the honesty. The defense has struggled and I am responsible. There is nothing better in this world than taking ownership over, over issues. Some people maybe do it to call attention to themselves, to garner sympathy. I don't believe that's the case in this point or the point in this case, I think that he is saying that this is on me. I'm responsible for this defense. They are underperforming. And so ultimately at the end of the day, that belongs to me. That's my bag to hold. We couldn't agree on solutions. So the speed D is better with new leadership. So even he's willing to go out of his way and say like, Hey, everybody has to be on the same page and it's better for the players if they're on the same page. And then he finishes up by saying, I love the players and staff and then encouraging them saying that they'll finish strong and go Cougs. Like you could not go out the door any more graceful than he did. And you know that this wasn't a graceful process in order for something like this to come to a head. There probably had to be some really, really tough moments, some really tough moments. He, he didn't want to not work there. Right. He wanted to finish the season off. He's making a really good salary, but he steps away from that position yeah, but is is this a is this a, a stupid move? Okay, though? is the is the question, and the only reason why I ask that is because you talked about the honorable thing, the honorable thing. Okay, I get it, but I'm, my question has to do with his buyout. Okay, whether this was a mutual decision and he's getting some sort of buyout to a leave, because who leaves their couple hundred thousand dollar a year job? or a few hundred thousand because he's a defensive coordinator for just because you feel like you weren't doing a good enough job because coaches contracts are guaranteed or, 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 or at least some portion of them, the majority of them are fully guaranteed or guaranteed to a portion, you know, 50%, 75%, depending on the uh, year and all that stuff, but they're mostly guaranteed. So is this a wise move or do you think, that I don't know. Pride, pride's a weird thing. Okay, you, I, was it? You, did I see you tweeting earlier today about Stefan Diggs eating two hundred thousand dollars just to not show up to practice? Mm-hmm. So uh, pr- pride is a really, really yep. strange thing. Um, Tracy Clay's got a raise going into this season. It wasn't a big raise, but it was, 
you know, he, he got a, he got an extra twenty five thousand thrown his way. Um, he had a good you know, he, I don't know. I don't know if it's smart for him. He was. Um, but sometimes your pride steps in. Honestly, with full conviction, it will be better for the team if you might take one for the team. I think that people will look at what he did last year and this year um, for Washington State and realize that the only way that an air raid is ever able to be competitive is if the defense can stop somebody to put the offense on the field at some point, you know? And so I think that he's probably a guy who will be in demand, um, especially to leave the way he did uh, to say, you know, uh, this team is still going to be good. I was responsible for the, for the mistakes. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that will send a signal to other people who are looking to hire somebody that like, Hey, this is a guy that that we can trust to take ownership over the situation. When you say like, was it dumb of him to do that? I don't know. You know, it, 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 it depends on what his goals are and who he is as a person. If he's looking to build generational wealth so that his grandkids, grandkids, you know, never have to worry about where their next meal is coming from, then maybe it's not smart to leave money on the table. But then again, if Washington state is sort of a sinking ship and things are falling apart and the only way for both Washington state to hold it together and for Tracy Clays to have an opportunity in the future in the future is to sever that relationship so that they can both move forward, then maybe it's incredibly wise. I just love the way he went about it, and I love what he said. I, what he said is, I mean, it was super refreshing. And I am not an optimist. I am not somebody who is without like extreme cynicism when it comes to especially coaches. I have a healthy, ingrained distrust of authority. And this still spoke to me. I loved it. <laughs> Yeah, I loved it too. I love the fact that he did take accountability, did the right. I mean, he did what what he felt was was right. So now going back to UCLA, though, my question about Chip Kelly and UCLA, talking about the DC yeah. situation, the defensive coordinator. So is Jerry Azanaro. And I'm wondering, because Chip Kelly doesn't really have a history of firing guys. But yeah. at Oregon, he didn't need to because they were winning so many games and people were just leaving for new jobs. Everybody was, you you know, when teams win, everybody gets hired. All You're always replacing your staff. Yeah. Look at Alabama. Look at Clemson, except for their defensive coordinator. So you're always replacing people. But will Chip Kelly, big balls Chip Kelly, be willing to fire his friends? Because so many of the people in his staff, including um, uh, Azanaro, you have uh, Don Pelham, you have other guys who were on his staff at Oregon or have coached with him other places. The defense looks atrocious. Will he be willing to fire his friends to get a new defensive coordinator and a new scheme? Yeah, I mean... Jeffrey Lurie of the Eagles is forever regretted the fact that he gave full personnel control to Chip Kelly. Um, you know, control has always been a thing with with Chip Kelly. I mean, there's a book about him called Controlled Chaos, and control is right there in the name. You know, I I think that it's going to be tough for Chip Kelly to find people that he trusts. One time, uh, and Todd Graham got killed for this for the rest of his coaching career at Arizona State uh, by other people in the coaching community. Um, but I think that in his transition from Pitt to Arizona State, he called assistant coaches mercenaries. 
And to some extent, that's kind of what they are um, because you're, but, but so is everybody right in a capitalist society. You can't necessarily focus on those things, but you know, control is really important for a guy like Chip Kelly. There's not a lot of people that maybe he feels like he can trust. And that's tough at the collegiate level when everybody's sort of using it as a platform to move on to the next thing. You know, you're talking about. Oh, go ahead. So could you, could you, could you, Ralph, could you fire your friend is, is the question. Could you fire somebody that you know that you've known for a long time because they're not getting their job done at coaching? If you, if you were the head coach, could you fire your yes. friend? Yes, I could do it. And here's what, and I, I, I married a very smart and capable uh, woman who is both a very artistic person as well as like a business executive. And one of the things that I've noticed in, in following her career as she sort of moved up the ranks is she does something that not a lot of other people do. She fires people. And, and, you know, nobody really likes to be like that, that, that person, nobody likes that person. Nobody likes to be that person, some, the executioner, right? Everybody's afraid of the executioner and the executioner always has a hood on because the executioner doesn't want people to know who he is either. Right. But one thing that, <laughs> that, that my wife told me and has taught me over the last few years, I'm going to sound super whipped by saying this, but I don't care. I don't have anybody impressed. She has taught me that. If you truly love the people around you, you will put them in positions to succeed, especially if they have not put themselves in a position to succeed. And so the the thing that she always says is nobody that you fire should ever be surprised by it. Never. The expectation should always be laid out there and you should always be tracking whether there's a gap between the expectations and the reality. And so nobody that you, you fire, unless it's for some like egregious thing that, 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 that pops up out of nowhere that was deceitful or disruptive, um, nobody should ever be surprised by it. Yeah, but they still know that they were going to get fired. Yes, yeah, them. right. Yeah, you would, still, you would still have to know. That shouldn't be a surprise to them. But anybody that she's coaching or she's in charge of or she's let go, it's been a thing where it said like, all right, well, these are the expectations. The company sets them. And so if you don't meet these expectations, then this is the consequence. How can I help you either A, meet these expectations or B, transition to somewhere where you can meet their expectations? And it sounds cold blooded, but I've watched over the years of like people that she's fired that have been pissed in the moment, like write her a thank you letter three, four years down the road saying like, I wasn't happy. You noticed you tried to let me know. And now I'm in this position and I'm doing I'm doing better. Like I'm doing better for myself. And so I, I don't think that I would have been able to do something like that because you want to be liked. And and some and, and in other situations, you just want like a Baghdad Bob around you, right? You're either a control freak or you you want to be popular. Either way, it's tough to let people go. Um, <laughs> and and I think for Chip Kelly, he's not the kind of guy that would just use Jerry Azanaro as a sacrificial lamb. And also I think he'd be afraid about what's on the other side of that if he did. And, and I think another thing that I I'm, I'm curious in you bringing up is uh, that maybe Jerry Azanaro's middle name is Atrick. I'll let you figure that one out on your own, but I think that'll bring you to your next point. So I, I hope he is ready to make some serious moves. Wait, hold up. Tell me what, what does Atrick mean? 
Oh, yes. So <laughs> that's funny. So that is the next point about UCLA's coaching staff. Their staff is really old. I mean, I hate to, it's the truth. <laughs> they have an old coaching staff and this is a young man's game. Recruiting is done via social media. Now it's not just phone calls, text messages. It is done on social media with edits and with direct messages, you know, all of that. You have to be popping on social media for kids to really, really connect with you and your program. And UCLA staff is old. They are not of the Twitter generation. They are they are face planers, face tube watchers they they're not sure i mean even though they know how to use it they're not actual um like they're not in the in crowd in that so if you are a coach now i think that you have to pay attention to keeping young people on the staff look at oregon's recruiting look at washington's recruiting they have young coaches on their staff 30s early 40s like people who actually play with these devices and would be on social media regardless of being coaches and trying to recruit they would be on there talking to their friends sending viral stuff sending you know memes all of that and ucla's coaches are not like i think that that plays a big part in why they are having trouble do you agree ralph maybe i mean i i don't like to be like just blatantly ageist but there are that you do wonder, you know, Jerry Azanaro graduated from American International College three years before that whole Apple uh, commercial where you threw them uh, oh, the, the PC through the window or whatever. Like that, it's it, it's not it doesn't necessarily need to be a young man's game from a coaching perspective, but you have to have the type of personality and and uh, persona that can understand and vibe with the modern game. You know, I think Herm Edwards is 64. They just brought Marvin Lewis on staff. Um, you know, they're, they're older guys. Ch- you know, Char- Charlie Fisher, Rob Likens, they got gray hair. Uh, but Arizona State staff kind of tends to be younger and more energetic and more open and understand, you know, remember remember when Jim Bora uh, kind of bashed Josh Rosen for saying the, like, uh, jo- uh, yeah. Josh Rosen is a millennial. He just needs to know why. You know, that well, for the coaches that, that are teachers, because that's what a freaking coach is, is you are a teacher. Your whole job has always been to treat your players like millennials. You don't just show them what to do. You tell them why they're doing it. That's the whole point of being a coach. Like millennials should, and it sucks that more millennials aren't playing sports because you would naturally transition into it because it is an immediate gratification type thing. You do the right thing. You see the right results, which trains your mind to want to do the right thing. And, and you get, you get sort of that instant rush from like, oh, I was taught a thing. I did it well. I got a pat on the back for it. And you move on to the next thing. Like sports has, this is the golden age of, of, you know, uh, millennials in sports should be intertwined and, and they're not really, um, because you know, for, for whatever reason, but like coaching and teaching have always gone hand in hand. 
And unless you're a do as I say, not as I do, or, a, you know, uh, sit at the kid's table and be seen and not heard type, type coach, then your age should never be a problem because your job has always been to understand who you're trying to teach and how they learn and then finding a way to get that done. So age shouldn't be an issue in coaching. We see what Pete Carroll does. We see what Herm Edwards has, has been doing. Um, and as, as long as you understand that things change and it's your job to figure out how to teach people regardless of how things are changing, you should be fine. When we look at Chip Kelly, it is sort of more of a my way or the highway type situation. Um, but I, so I don't know. I don't know. Can age contribute to a lack of success when your responsibilities are just relating to kids in general? Yeah. I mean, especially when your recruiting philosophy is meet all of our standards before we'll welcome you oh, for sure. into the family when a lot of these kids just want to be courted. Like they want to be convinced. And so I think more of the issue would just have to yeah. be, um, and, I, and Chip Kelly's a military guy, right? Like he's got a military background. I think that a lot of it would just be more um, how stringent and closed off yeah. he is. Yeah, yeah. He's not I think really... he also only closes right. recruits from what I've heard. Like he doesn't participate in the recruiting process. He just comes in to say like, welcome to UCLA once they, once they are ready to go ahead and make that, um, make that commitment. So if you're going to be that way, then oh, you yeah. need to be surrounded by people who are all, sort of the honey much trap all for all freshmen the and redshirt and, freshmen. Yeah. That's the core of their team and, and some sophomores who he recruited. Like the juniors and seniors that were on this team are either not there anymore or they're on the bench for the, for the most part. So he came in, he came in, he cut two kids that I know like immediately two offensive linemen from Sorrel high school down here. And, you know, both of those guys were pretty banged up and they were happy to take their scholarship and stay at UCLA. Um, but the, the, he came in with the mindset that we're just going to call the fat right away. And I think he made a, maybe did a little bit too much of that. And that that's also not a thing that I like to see because just because they're not your guys, if you go in and you kick a bunch of people off the team because they're not your guys, you are admitting there is a deficiency in your ability to teach. That is an, uh, that is. See, see, I don't agree with that only because some players don't fit your style and some players don't fit your, your system. And that's just what it is. But sometimes you're going to need those bodies. And if you, I mean, if you can't win somebody over, how are you going to win games? Yeah. Especially in college football. And so if you come in paranoid that like, oh, these are Mora's guys, you know, the reason that I was hired in the first place is because the culture was bad here. Then if you believe that the fish rots from the head and if you're going to be like Tracy Clays and say like, oh, the person in charge is the one that's responsible for this, then you take some responsibility and you try to inject some new culture into the players that you have on board. I didn't honestly, I didn't like it when Herm Edwards came in and did it at Arizona State either, you know, and, and, and got rid of a bunch of guys. I wasn't a huge fan of that. But at least they came in with the mindset of like, hey, we're going to be open and honest with you um, and we're going to tell you whether or not you have a you have a future here. I felt like UCLA did it more of a like, hey, I'm here. This is the way it is now. I'm not going to give you the opportunity to, you know, to, to say that you want to be a part of this or not. I'm just going to move my stuff into the living room and eventually I expect your stuff to be out by the morning. Dude. And um, I, I just don't know if that set a really good precedent 
when you can only have 85 scholarships and injuries are a thing, uh, especially when you're playing young guys, they're going to get injured. I just feel like, you know, depth is um, among everything else, talent and all that depth is a huge issue for UCLA. Up one, 100 per percent. And I guess we'll start with that game today. Oregon State 48, UCLA 31. This literally changed the bottom of the Pac-12 power rankings. Oregon State has been at the bottom for, I mean, this is only their second conference win in three years. Only the second conference win. So so they've been at the bottom. Like, it's been clear. It's been evident. There's been no doubt. And now there's a new team at the bottom. Ralph, when I got to this game yesterday, I pulled up. So if anybody's been to the Rose Bowl, you generally have to park a decent amount of ways from the uh, a decent walk away from the stadium. We pulled up into the parking lot because we came from my son's game at at kickoff. Basically, when we got when we got to our seats, there was six minutes gone in the first quarter. So there was nine minutes to go in the first quarter. Do you know what the score was, Ralph? Literally with 859 in the in the first quarter to go in the first quarter. They have yes, so they have 21 by that point yet? to zero. That is probably the fat I walked into the stadium, but as I was walking through the tunnel, I was checking the score in the Oregon game because I was watching it on my phone, but I was carrying the baby, so I had to put it down for a second. I couldn't watch it. And when I looked at my phone, it I the score flashed on the bottom. I was like, "Hell no! There's zero chances. Twenty-one. That the game just started. Yeah, yeah. And mind you, there were no turnovers in the process, none. And they were up twenty-one-zero. And I was just like, "This is." But my uh, initial thought was, "Okay, they got them right where they want them, because they." <laughs> Because they went, they got 20, 21 7, then they gave up a score 27 7, 27 10, and then it was 27 17. And I was like, uh oh, uh oh, here comes the comeback. Yeah, right. Nope. They can't, this team can't stop a nosebleed. And Dorian Thompson Robinson, he did not play. And now UCLA is one and five, one and two in the conference, and Oregon State is two and three and one and one in the conference. Rob, I, I was looking at the stats. UCLA rushed for more yards, had more first downs. They're only through for a few yards less. They're, you know, like if you just looked at the stats, you would not think that they should have lost this game. They won the time of put possession, even though that that's not necessarily a, uh, a determination between winning and losing. And they gave up zero points off of turnovers. So I, I, I can't even make sense of this. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. The, the I, I've been waiting for somebody. I've been waiting for somebody to go out and just run the ball at UCLA and use the run to set up the pass because for some reason Washington State wanted to run their offense regardless of whether or not they had built a 30-some point lead uh, and it came back to bite them, you know, and, and, and Stanford did what they did, but – you know, it, or I'm sorry, not Stanford, but um, uh, Arizona, you know, Arizona. Arizona came in and they threw the ball 29 times in the first half. And so I've been waiting for a team to just go out and treat UCLA like what they are, which is just a rusty turnstile on defense. And Oregon State did that. And then they were and, and Jake Luton was efficient. 
and threw five touchdowns. And this was just, I mean, this was a bloodbath because it should have been. UCLA is not a good team right now. And Oregon State has two or three guys that are at an all-Pac-12 level and could be playing for anybody. They got two running backs, a receiver, and an outside linebacker who are probably all amongst the top 30 players in the Pac-12. And so, you know, if you go out there and you just play to your strengths and you lean on that, and if they need speed, they've got Tyjon Lindsey. And if they need dependability, they've got Colby Taylor. And if they need a spark, uh, they got the little champ Flemings. And if you just need a first down, Isaiah Hodgins is your guy. So, you know, I, I'm... Well, well, I, I think he was more than just a first down. He had 10 catches yeah. for 123 and three sometimes, touchdowns. Sometimes you need a first and, down on first down. And he's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the crazy part was you are 100% right about the rushing game because Oregon State averaged five rushing yards per game. Five. And oh, per carry. Is, <laughs> I was like, so, per game. I was like, yeah, damn. Yeah, I five. Yeah, yeah. Five. Yeah, five per. Yeah, five per carry. And, I mean, and think, think, think about it. Jamar Jefferson only touched the ball five times. So, like, this was all Artavius Pierce. Uh, even Jake Lute, uh, Lutton, Luton, Lute, however you L- say Luton, say like look. Vladimir Putin. Okay. 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 Or the or or door number three. <laughs> <laughs> um, Luton, Luton. My, my wife always makes fun of me because some things, so I say things like Valium and all this stuff. And this is one of these things with, with his name that for some reason I'm having a little bit of uh, trouble with, but whatever. That's almost like when we got the email, did I, did I sit? I, yeah, I sent yeah, you yeah. I was saying LaVisca, LaVisca Chanel instead of LaVisca. Yeah. And also about me saying, calling Tyrone, uh, Ty, uh, oh Lord, uh, Ty, the Utah oh, coach, Whittingham, yeah, Whittingham. Ty, Ty Whittingham instead of Kyle Whittingham. Yes, yes. And the reason why, just so everybody is clear, is because when I say, when I think of Whitting, Whittingham, I'm thinking of Tyrone Willingham. The coach from Stanford. Oh my gosh! All these names are screwing with, with my mind right now. So, it, anyways, let's get back to the order. You got thing. you just every time that happens, just be like, man, I got a baby, I got a baby at home. <laughs> I got a baby. I barely slept. I was yeah. on I was on radio at five in the morning. I'm doing. I'm doing. Uh-huh. I'm leaning on it too. I got. I got four kids. They're on fall break right now, and my wife's in Chicago. Like the fact that I'm even making words, I'm proud of me. You don't need to be proud of me. <laughs> So yeah, so Oregon Oregon State is still not great, but UCLA's worse. And I thought that this year after UCLA losing, you know, 6 or 7 games last year by 25 or more points, that their goal should be to stay close and try to sneak a couple out. And they almost snuck the Stanford game out and they beat UCLA. So now they're going to when Utah heads up to Corvallis next year, next year, next week, that is a trap game. Uh, but we can move on to the next game, the Arizona Amsden's Amsden Wildcats <laughs> versus the Colorado Buffaloes. And this game went kind of how we thought it was. We thought it'd be a high scoring game, but uh, I guess we found out our Khalil Tate 
um conspiracy theory was was not true because he came out he played played well and i was just waiting on ralph to just i I know he was just basking in his own glory because he had Khalil tate play well play pretty pretty well except for the very end of the game where he almost tried to give it away and he had ucla lose big so i was like he's just he's just rolling around like a pig in (laughs) slop right now I honestly like I don't I don't like to gloat that much and and Khalil Tate did a couple of things in this game that were just mind-bogglingly stupid and so I can't you know I'm 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 if I'm going to be on him I got to be you know his toughest critic as well but the truth of the matter is it's what did I t- uh, that it was now uh, Boulder Khalil Ratto yeah. is what they have to change the name to cuz this dude owns the Buffaloes I'm not even going to rattle off the stats just just know he's only thrown for over 400 yards once ever and it was on saturday and before that he had only gone over like 350 uh twice one versus hawaii in a comeback attempt at the beginning of this year and the other time was against colorado and he got his start rushing for over 320 yards against colorado so uh, they are done they they are done with him they never have to face him again so congratulations to colorado you're finally rid of him um he 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 had a couple of bad mistakes in the game. He he just gifted the Buffaloes a touchdown right before halftime, and then he came out and he threw a seventy-five yard touchdown on the very next play. Um, so I mean, you you get what you get with him. He's probably not fully healthy because you know he had a good run to start the game, and then he finished the game with a run with an emphatic first down run, which was pretty cool. Uh, but this Colorado defense isn't that good. Had he done anything less than what he did yesterday, I think that there would have been reason to probably criticize um, his effort. I, I, I was. In, I, this is what I believe he should be doing. He he should be scaring defenses into giving him the ability to hit open receivers. Um, so the the Khalil Tate that showed up yesterday is the Khalil Tate that I expect to continue to show up. But this defense is uh what 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 do the kids say it's boo-boo it's, it's very bad uh um they say they say and, it's trash oh man he's trash he's yes trash. this arizona defense is not very good um it's not very deep they've got injury issues uh they could they could have some serious trouble down the line so it kind of doesn't really matter to me the rest of the way what khalil tate does because they're about to really like enter the danger zone as far as their schedule goes. And I think he's going to have some good statistical performances. Um, but I honestly, George, I don't even know if he finishes the year at quarterback because there is some, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I think that you see it and everybody else who follows this program sees it too. I don't think this coaching staff likes him very much. I don't think that they want him at quarterback after the game. Uh, the pack, the pack 12 reporter was asked, you know, um, what about Khalil Tate? You know, when what, what you made the decision for him to go, and, and and Kevin Sumlin like instantly changed the subject, like immediately changed the subject to not have to talk about Khalil Tate. Then she went over to ask Khalil Tate, like, what made you decide that you were ready to play because he was a game time decision, and he said, "You're going to have to ask Coach Sumlin that question." <laughs> and so, you know, I, and I and it all harkens back to me remembering the very very first moment in my head of Kevin Sumlin coming to Arizona he got like interviewed at an Arizona basketball game after being hired and he called Khalil Tate Khalil Mack 
Are you serious? And it was just from, oh yeah. It was just from that point on, it was just like, man, this dude does not, they, they, they have Khalil Tate there because they have to. I would not be surprised if they don't finish the season with him. It just, something seems off to me, man. Something seems seriously off. He should be the guy. He, they should be, you know, celebrating him. That relationship seems icy. The way they ran the offense when he wasn't on the field was just, it was a completely different animal. Everything to me seems like they just can't wait to move on from him. And if they hit a rough patch, if they lose a couple of games, I don't think it's going to matter what he does statistically. I think eventually you're going to see Arizona maybe make that transition into who it is they're going to be instead of sticking with who they are right now. And um, this is a weird prediction for me to make because I am not into conspiracy theories or gossip or, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. There's no inside information here. It's just the vibe I'm picking up is that this is not this is not going to work out well for Arizona down the stretch. Feels weird to say that about a four and one team coming off a good win where Khalil Tate just threw for 400 yards, but I'm telling you something's on, like something is wrong. Well, the, they got to go to Seattle. They have to go to Seattle next week to play Washington. Then they go at USC at Stanford, Oregon state, then Oregon, and then Utah and Arizona state. You are right. That is a murderer's row at that point. Like you, you, you don't get a week off. You don't get time to just, you know, collect yourself. And there is a chance that they could drop uh, three three in a row or three or four. And, yeah, and you could be absolutely right about that. But I wanted to talk, talk about Colorado for a second. They're doing all this without Chenault. I'm not even going to try to say his, his first first name right now because <laughs> this is just I, – dude, I, I, I have to realize my – limitations with with fatigue and with everything else i got going on <laughs> i have to realize so i'm not even going to make anybody upset today so but Col- but colorado though i love the direction that they are headed i f- this team feels like they are competing hard they dropped another close game that they could have won they to arizona and it just so to say they lost 35 to 30 and the previous week, they lost by three to Arizona State. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. They beat Arizona State. And then they, but the week before that, they lost to Air Force 30 to 23. And the resounding theme with this team is defense. They gave up 31 to Colorado State, 31 to Nebraska, 30 to Air Force, 31 to Arizona State, and 35 to Arizona. I mean, this is a... Like, who do you think at this point, besides UCLA, has the worst defense in the Pac-12? It's got. I mean, you got to flip a coin between Oregon State and Colorado, I think. And, and maybe Washington State's up there because you have the resignation or whatever, and obviously they gave up a million points to UCLA. But I, I don't have any faith in this Colorado defense. I, they got a couple of good players, but yeah. Mustafa not being out there. You know, Landman is a linebacker. He's not going to be able to cover deep routes. Um, they don't get a ton of pressure on the quarterback um, unless it's like an obvious pin your ears back and, and, and rush the quarterback third and 10 situation like they did at the end of the game against ASU. Um, there are issues. I don't know if they're talent or schematic. I guess maybe time will tell. It feels like they've got some good players out there, um, but I'm not really sure. They've played against some talented uh, offenses as well. And then you got the gimmicky Air Force stuff going on. So maybe we'll we'll see if they kind of figure things out 
um, down the line or if it continues to be their Achilles heel. What I want to talk about with Colorado is when did Steven Montez and Tony Brown become Andrew Walter and Derek Hagan? Bro, dude, Tony Brown, it, like, I um, remember at the beginning of the season, I told you as somebody, they sent me a tweet when I was talking about the that USC had the best wide receivers in the country. Then it was like Alabama, Clemson, and o- Oklahoma. And somebody said, you're forgetting about Colorado. They have these guys, even Tony, Tony Brown. And just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that had to be Tony Brown's mom <laughs> or something. Like there's no way you could have expected him in his fifth year to go off like this. I tweeted yesterday, like Arizona and Arizona state fans have to be united in their hatred of Tony Brown right now. And I got a bunch of tweets that like, we'll never be united about anything. And I was like, all right. But like, he's had a full on career against both teams. Um, he looks, he, this doesn't, it doesn't look like a, like a couple of good games either to the naked eye. He looks like an elite football player. Yep. And maybe, maybe it's just the connection that they have. Maybe it's LaVisca not being out there, but my goodness is this kid balling out right now. Uh, and maybe it takes five years for somebody, but I mean, he looks like he could get himself after four years of being a guy who gets maybe, you know, 20 reps a game, whether at Texas Tech or now at Colorado, this dude looks like he's going to get his name called. Yes, yes, he <laughs> looks like an NFL wide wide receiver. And coming into the game, he was already seventh in the conference in yards per game. And you know he's a little bit higher on that after this week because some of the guys in front of him either didn't, didn't play or didn't play or didn't put up big stats at all. So he's going to be creeping up to the top of that that list. And I'm just saying, like, th- this is pretty impressive. So I want to give him a lot of credit for it. And But with Colorado in general, Mel, Mel Tucker has his team competing. They're playing hard. And he's a defensive coach. So you know at some point in time that, that this offseason, particularly in recruiting, that it is going to be paramount for them to get the horses and put in a scheme because he's got to learn how to play against Pac-12 competition. And he's got to figure out how to win on defense. And and I think he's going to be a guy who can get it done and make it very, very tough. And then, I mean, and Steve, Steve Montez has given him absolutely everything he has right now. Like, especially with the way the season ended last year of Montez losing seven in a row, you know, and and maybe it'll end up looking this year a lot like it did last year, because I think last year he started out in the first five games, he had 11 touchdowns, two interceptions. He's at 10 and two right now. Yeah. And then, and then to finish the season, he threw eight touchdowns, seven interceptions, including three at the end of the season at Cal. Um, and, and he looked terrible. So maybe, maybe he sort of regresses, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. It, it just watching the way that he's playing and watching the way that offense is running. He looks like he's grown up. He's got a good connection with his guys and they're doing it without LaVisca Chenault. And so I think that gives LaVisca time to heal up, to make sure that when he comes back, that he's truly ready to go and not out there with a core injury, you know, aggravating anything. Yeah. Yeah, this Colorado team has a, you know, has a little bit of a schedule uh, ahead of them as well. 
They got Oregon next at Oregon next week, which is which looks like an impossible task. Um, unless they turn the ball over, <laughs> unless they turn the ball over the same way they did against Cal uh, in the beginning of the game. Then they go to at the Palouse, so they play Washington State, USC. Then they get a game against UCLA that might be seventy-two to sixty-eight. Um, and then they got Stanford, Washington, and at Utah to finish the season. It is not. That's not exactly an easy schedule. And yeah, so so we will see how this team goes. And if they continue to to compete, that's what I'm that's what I want to see the most. Um, and then we'll get to the last two games of the day. So the next game in, in order of time was the Cal went up to Oregon. Cal went up to Oregon, lost 17 to 7. But Cal was up in the game. They were winning the football game until the third quarter. Until so Oregon went up. Oregon kicked a field goal with seven minutes to go in the third quarter. That was their first points. Even though they had already missed a field goal earlier, it was seven to three with seven minutes left. And it did not appear that that Cal was going to be able to, to score. Oregon actually gave up their first touchdown uh, since week one against, against Auburn, which is pretty incredible. They didn't give up. They hadn't given up a touchdown in three games and they gave up one in the first quarter against Cal. And then they scored again with a minute and 38 left to go in the third quarter. And at 10 to seven, it was pretty much over. They added another touchdown late. But I would say the story of this game was Cal's defense, dude. Without their quarterback, without anything, they managed to hold the – I mean, well, they forced Oregon into three turnovers. Two, two of them were pretty self-inflicted, but it was still pretty amazing to see how hard these kids compete. Yeah. I mean, I, I was telling you before we started recording, Cal looked good. Cal looked like a really good football team. They just weren't the best team. I mean, they, it was there was a talent deficiency there. Maybe that will close over time, um, but at the at the that's why you play four quarters. This is something that Colin Cowherd always says that like there's a reason that the game is four quarters, and it's that and it's toward the end when you will see those who like are truly talented start to pull away, and that's that's all that really happened. This was a great effort from Cal. I didn't even think that you know. Um, that things really looked that bad from a quarterback perspective. It could certainly be worse based on what our expectations were going into the game. A um, couple of costly injuries yeah. for, for Oregon. I absolutely hated to see that uh, toward the end, but this is what happens. Oh, with that, yeah, that Gus, Gus yeah. Cumberlander, he got, he got hurt. That was really bad. And and he and it looks like he's probably going to be out for the rest of the season, probably or at least till bowl. Yeah, and so you know, I, I hate to see stuff like that, but that's what comes with some of these knockdown, drag out, you know, or <laughs> drag out knockdown, or however you say it, matchups. Um, I you know I, I watched a good portion of this game, and um, I, the stat that they flashed across the screen that really shocked me was this is the first time Oregon's been shut out in the first half at Autzen Stadium since. Indiana came there in 2004. So, I mean, Cal did something yeah. really, really special. And, and I, I really liked that after the game, Justin Wilcox said that like, they, we're not, we can't hang our heads after this. Um, and I agree with him. I, I think oh, yeah. that this was a, a good step forward for them and, and, and probably a lesson to Mike Leach. 
they're just yeah that like yep. hey you know we 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 played hard and we lost you know there are no moral victories but there are things that we can build off of you know he he didn't come out there and 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 rip his players at least publicly you know i'm sure he had some stuff to say in there was nothing to yeah. rip them there was nothing to rip them about like like they were just outmatched and and that leads me to this cal is a very unique situation they have justin wilcox who's their head coach he is obviously a phenomenal head coach he's hired you know, really a Tim, Tim DeRuiter, really good defensive coordinator. Obviously, I mean, like they're doing a really good job of coaching guys up. His assistant coaches are really good, particularly on defense. But the question I continuously ask myself is this, Ralph. Is this a team? Is this a university that can get five-star talent or a bunch of four-star talent? Because they've been able to develop guys into NFL prospects that were two and three star players. So can they get elite player, elite talent there? And if not, how long before Justin Wilcox gets an opportunity at UCLA or gets an opportunity at Florida State or anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, I hate that we're even talking about that, but it it. There are issues at Cal. Obviously, the support um, for the football program isn't as high as it is in some other places. Um, and, you know, they could use definitely uh, an infusion of an infusion of capital to help keep up with the Joneses. They've been doing some positive things, and I think they're moving in the right direction by just even having Wilcox there. Um, I'm more worried about his staff um, cashing in on the goodwill that they've built up than I am necessarily, you know, you, you got a guy like Charlie Ragel out there who has helped just plunder Arizona of talent. And, you know, this is a guy that wants to be a head coach someday. You know, what happens if he gets an opportunity? You know, he's, I think he's from New Mexico and New Mexico state's like the worst team on the planet. You know, do you, do, does he, does he look at that as an opportunity that there's, there's a bunch of guys on their defensive backs coach. I mean, they, they have so many good coaches out there that are all doing a really good job. How do you get them to, to re- keep reinvesting in this program and see it through when everybody's also got their individual goals and you want them to accomplish those as well. Uh, it's going to be an interesting balancing act, but I think that if they can find a way to get some athletes um, at the receiver position and at the running back position, and maybe even just harken back to the, to, to, to the days of having six straight running backs at Cal that were all picked in the NFL draft, you know, whether it was, you know, J.J. Arrington or Marshawn, you know, they're not all going to be super special, but Travis exactly, Pitts. exactly. Um, so uh, I think that they just, they need a guy, right? They need a guy on the offensive side of the football who is going to be the balance to like an Evan Weaver type on the defensive side of the football, somebody that you can really rely on. Because right now they're just piecing together these drives and don't really have that super threat or playmaker. Uh, that that uh, receiver that they have, the Juco kid, the six, five kid, he could be really good, but you don't have anybody to really consistently get him the ball now. Um, so it, Oh, they got Garber. Stop hating but they don't on Garbers. Him. He's a good they quarterback, Ralph. Oh, wet, wet, wet blanket, man. He'll be back. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but on, on the Oregon side though, I was, I was very encouraged. 
I have been asking for Oregon to run the football better. And finally, they ran the football better. You saw gashes. You saw 18, 19, 16, 20. Like, this was what you want to see out of an Oregon football team. I mean, even C.J. Verdell, who I've been critical of, had some good runs. His long was only 11, but he looked like he had some vision. And Cal is no slouch on defense. So, I want to give them, them credit for that. The other thing is they didn't have necessarily conservative play. And the other thing was Micah Pittman looks really, really good. This was his first game playing. They got Brendan Schooler back, who's more of a possession receiver, but he looked a little faster this, this week. They got Jawan Johnson, the Penn State transfer, back on the field. And this wide receiving court is at full strength for the first time. I think that they are going to really, really have a chance. If they stay focused, this is a team that will be in the top 10 in a, co- in a couple weeks. Do you think, and, and maybe this sounds crazy, but I kind of felt this way watching the game, that the infusion of talent at wide receivers sort of threw off the balance of some stuff. Like maybe people were playing positions that they hadn't have played um, up until yes. that point. It just it felt like the rhythm was just off. Especially with like Breland, he'd make a couple of catches and then, and then he just wouldn't be in the right place or Herbert wouldn't be able to find him. Johnny Johnson just looked absolutely pedestrian. Um, and you, you hate to see that up and down with him, but that's just what was going on. Um, well, that's who he's kind of been though, too. Yes. Yeah. But I, that the just lack of consistent, I think, you know, I think long term it's a good thing, but maybe you have some guys playing out of position or switching um, that just affected the chemistry for a one game only type thing, because I didn't, you know, I, I just thought that they, they looked like they were all, it looked like the first game of the year. Um, yeah. As far as the passing game. I would totally, I would, that was a great summation of it. And the last game in the pac 12 this week was uh, a shocker for most, but not so much for me, Stanford who had looked terrible at times this year. I mean, absolutely putrid when they lost to UCF. They were horrible in the first half. They were better in the second half. They put up a fight against Oregon, so that 21-6 loss against Oregon actually looked a little bit better. But then they came up and gave 28 points, gave up 28 points to Oregon State at Oregon State, and then they come back and beat Washington. And I, this when, when I was looking at this game, Ralph, I was like, David Shaw's a good coach. Like he's a good coach. He's going to figure something out. Even though I've said he's a late adopter offensively, he figured something out. Like he just like he just exploited the things that Washington does not do well. The truth is, Washington has some receivers. They do not like to be touched and do not like to be hit. They dropped balls in the Cal game. They dropped balls in the Stanford game. You put a little wood on them, and they don't like catching those intermediate passes across the middle where you can get touched up even a little bit with the new rules, and that's what happened. They dropped a bunch of that, and they just got whipped up front by Stanford, and Stanford lost another defensive lineman, so they're out without Walker Little. 
They lost another defensive lineman. I don't know what to make of this Washington team right now, but I will say, Ralph, I'm not afraid to to uh, say I ha ha I was right, and I told you about Jacob Easy. Yeah, I mean, I I I see where you're going. I don't know if I'm willing to meet you there yet. Some of this felt like Eason's fault, and some of it felt like I don't know, George. How many movies have you seen where someone like walks into quicksand and they start to sink, and then like one person there is like, "Oh, you're." Not supposed to move. Stop moving. And then, you know, I, I always I always thought growing up, like, man, if I ever see quicksand, I'm totally going to know what to do. But yeah. it, it turns out quicksand is, like, way more prevalent in kids' shows. Uh, and it was just in the door of the Explorer movie. Don't go see that. My kids talked me into that. That was not a positive experience. But they, <laughs> they had quicksand in that movie, too. And I'm like, oh, you just don't move and you'll be fine. But yet there's always somebody who isn't aware and they kick and scream and they get swallowed up. Right. I'm watching this game and I just, every single thing Washington did, it was like, stop moving, stop. Like you're doing the exact thing. <laughs> like Stanford is just quicksand. It, 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 it's, it's, it's obsolete. If you, and it's not a problem. If you just don't play into what they want you to play into. And I felt like Washington just slowly killed themselves all night long they didn't run the ball. They didn't even put their tight ends on the field. Kate Otten and Hunter Bryant had three combined catches. Those guys are supposed to be lethal weapons for Washington. You you might want to talk about the receivers being soft, but like these tight ends, they can play. Hunter Bryant wasn't even on the field for like a huge part of the second half. Ahmed touched the ball like what? Seven times. Yeah. And he's your star. Uh, they they ran the ball 19 times in what was effectively a one-score game for a lot of the game. Well, they they didn't they, really have a lot of plays, though, either. Because no, Stanford, they did not. Stanford had the ball. Uh, um, Washington only had the ball out of a 60-minute game. They had the ball for 20 minutes. Stanford had the ball for 40 minutes. They just got – and they got 24 first downs. To Washington's fifteen, Stanford rushing. But what do you rush? What are you doing throwing the ball two to one? Mm. I just don't. I don't get it. Like what they go out there and throw the ball on first down. That's what they want you to do. Yeah, but you got like this I, I just see new toy from from Georgia yeah, that everybody screamed right. about was going to be the Pac-12 Player of the Year, the best player in the conference. He's going to be rev- revolutionary, and he came out here and he's had a, this this relatively pedestrian game, sixteen for thirty six, which is below fifty percent. One, um, yeah, against uh, one touchdown, one interception, I think. Yeah, and it was very pedestrian. He had a pedestrian game against Cal. And even last week, I think as well, like he he hasn't been special at all. I mean, he was special against the bad teams, but I'm yeah. I mean, but 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 Jake, Jacob Eason is an upgraded, a slight. He's he is if Jake Browning was was uh was iOS twelve point eight, <laughs> Jacob Eason is thirteen point one. 
it, 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 this is this is not a huge difference. It is just an update to. But your that image. should be good enough. That should be good enough, especially if we've learned anything in football over the last ten years by watching Aaron Rodgers, one of the most talented dudes to ever do it, and Tom Brady, an incredibly good quarterback. If we've learned anything from just the two careers of those side by side, it's that your quarterback can't do it alone. And that you shouldn't have to depend on him to make big plays if you want to win. So it doesn't matter how talented Jacob Eason is. If you go out there with two hands tied behind your back, you're not going to be able to throw punches or defend yourself. And they didn't use their tight ends, and they didn't really run the ball. And they got embarrassed by a Stanford team who lost Henry Haddis to, I hope to God he's okay, because that looked disgusting. You you mentioned they don't have Walker Little. There's three freshmen starting on that Stanford offensive line. They were on their third string quarterback. And I know how you feel about Cameron Scarlett. And they still went out there and punched Washington in the mouth and made them look stupid. These types of games should not be happening in 2019, the year of our Lord. We talked about this. <laughs> Stanford is outdated. They are going the way of the Buffalo. As long as you don't fall into these little situations in which Stanford ultimately has the advantage because you decided to play their game, then you should be fine. I I felt like this was a... The second worst rush offense in the entire Pac-12 going against one of the best rushing defenses in the Pac-12, and they just ran them over. And let me give you guys some insight if you do not know. So the problem with Washington is this. The problem with Washington is this. Their their defensive coordinator, who is a good defensive coordinator, he's a smart guy, Jimmy Lake. He like he is their the defensive backs coach, and the majority of time, if is you saw Stanford, they rarely got into a lot of tight end sets. They mainly stayed in one back out of the shotgun. Or, or even if they were under under center, they didn't get in a lot of those heavy sets they, that, that they normally get in. So what they did is Washington likes to play with five defensive backs on the field. Sometimes they even play with six. And so the majority of the time, they're in a 4-2-5. So four down linemen, two linebackers, and three, I'm sorry, and five defensive backs. And Stanford was playing smart because one of the other guys that's on the field for them is Cody Parkinson, who's a huge tight end, 6'7". They they played big guys versus little guy football. And the big guys won because big guys knocked little guys out of the way. And they didn't make an adjustment to put a third linebacker on the field and take another defensive back off the field. So when... Whenever they put three linebackers out there, Stanford threw the ball. Whenever they put two out there, they ran the ball. It, it was just a just a. I mean, they got out coached. Uh, David Shaw figured out what was going on with Washington and out coached them. Definitely, definitely a coaching win and a coaching loss. Um, and Stanford did it with spare parts. And I'm not super confident in how things are going to go for Stanford the rest of the year based on some of the things that are happening, but at least we figured a few things out. Davis Mills was the number one. He might not, when it's all said and done, he might be far from having been the number one rated pocket passer in, in his entire class. Uh, but he was rated that way for a reason. He is more than capable. We, we learned that. 
Um, we also we also learned that if you give them an opportunity, they will still find a way to win. And so Stanford is still dangerous in this conference. Washington, uh, I mean, this is two losses now that are probably that maybe didn't need to be. And yeah. Yeah, and Washington fans were I because I I go into everybody's uh, uh, message boards and all of that, and the Stanford, I'm sorry, and the Washington fans were saying we're fine. Same thing happened last year. We lost to Cal. Gold is on the Rose Bowl. Don't worry. Don't panic. And you lose to Stanford now, and you're like, uh oh, we are owing to an. No, these are Pac-12, two Pac-12 North losses. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, it is time to be. You're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. The, the chances of going to the Rose Bowl are slim now because because you also have to because you have to go beat Oregon, which has at least well, they have a better defense than Stanford, and their their defense production wise is better than cows. Even, even though I do think that cows overall defense may be a little bit better, but Oregon is only get in their last four games. They have only, they, they've only given up one touchdown and they haven't even allowed a team to score more than seven points, more than seven points. So I'm like, George, even if Washington goes five and one, which they're more than capable of going five and one the rest of the way, it will still end up being three losses in your division, not just in the conference, in your division. And that's not a place that they want to be ever. That's a tough year. They go nine and three and consider it a tough year. Yeah, it's especially when those losses aren't like nine conference losses against like a huge team. None of them are that. You just lost your conference games. That means you are a middle of the road team in the conference this yeah. this year. Not not overall, but this year. When when Washington fans, they were talking potential national championship. And and it's just not happening. So the the question is, what does the future at quarterback look like for Washington? But anyways, of the you, you what you think that because uh, I got a couple of tweets from people yesterday saying that these next six games go well and Jacob Eason bounces. Uh, I, I mean, in theory he could, but but I doubt that he. I, I think that if he leaves, based upon what he's shown so so far, he will be drafted somewhere around the time that that Jason Stidham was out of out of Auburn. When everybody thought that Jason Stidham, oh, he's going to be a first-round draft pick. Yeah, nah, he's probably fifth or sixth-round pick. That's kind of where Jacob Easton is. Yeah, right you know now. what sucks about that is Stidham is probably going to end up the best quarterback from that draft class <laughs> because he ended up in the perfect situation at the perfect t- twilight of Tom Brady's career. So I don't want to say too many bad things about him because I'm sick of the Patriots winning and I don't want another 15 years yeah, of this. You- uh, but can I, I just want to say one thing before we move on to the Washington-Stanford game that I absolutely love and I'm I'm not kidding you I'm not exaggerating that I was falling asleep and part of the reason was the commentators it was just over for them this was like what a three point yep. game at halftime and the entire second half it was like the crew that was working the game was like uh, yeah this is this is it like I remember when Washington punted midway through the fourth quarter they were like well they're probably yeah, not getting the ball yeah. back like yeah, they can't. yeah, they were. They were. It was. I'm it my was Jason Benetti, Rod, Rod Gilmore, and Quint. Uh, 
Kissinich. And they were all saying, oh, well, you know, if 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 Washington punts, I understand why they're punting on fourth and 19, but, you know, they may not get the ball. But that's that's that. Yeah, it was it's like watching somebody like yeah, you watch somebody put somebody else in a full Nelson. And it's like that maybe that first that that person's first time ever being in a full Nelson. So they're struggling and struggling. And you're just sitting there telling them like, hey, just give up because you're done. Like it's over just just relax because the more you struggle the worse it's gonna be that's what it felt like watching the end of this game with the crew was just like uh <laughs> well thank you guys for joining us for the pac-12 apostles we appreciate your time appreciate your energy thank you so much um you guys make sure you share the feed download the feed tell a friend about the unafraid show uh, and tell a friend about the pac-12 apostles podcast we will try to get more sleep before the next podcast uh peace out catch you guys later